Uh, If you have a Bible, open to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. Um, If you're concerned that you haven't seen Tim in a few weeks, he will be back next week. I had somebody after the service that was like, hey, great message. When's Tim coming back? (laughs) He's here. Uh, He's actually going to be... He'll be back in the pulpit next week. So Tim Lawn, our lead pastor, and I'm just I'm super thankful for Tim for a lot of different reasons, but that he uh, cares enough about the guys around here to give us a chance to uh, come and teach. But yeah, so Tim will be back. So don't be scared. Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the text up on the screen for you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at all, we'd love to get one into your hands and you just simply go to the Commons bookstore at the close of the service and tell them that you'd like one of the free Bibles. They'll make sure that you get one uh, there. If you have a Bible but you're not familiar with where anything is in it, the Bible's like most books. It has a table of contents, so just look for the book of Mark. And then we're going to start in chapter 11. As we continue in our series this morning, let me read this uh, to us as, as we start. Romans chapter 11, verse 27, and they came again into Jerusalem. So this is Jesus and his followers, his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? he's talking about what we encountered last week where Jesus was cleansing the temple. And verse 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30, was the baptism of John, he's speaking of John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Because they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet, a mouthpiece sent by God. And so they answered to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. Jesus said this, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. Verse 4, and again he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. But he had still one other, a beloved son, a son that he loved. And finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray and ask God to help us with this this morning. Father God, we love you, and God, we're so thankful for your word this morning. God, we're thankful that you um, allow us the freedom to gather together like this and to sing songs about you and to you and to be reminded of your faithfulness and your goodness and your amazing love over us. And God, now we're thankful for um, a time where we can open your word. And God, we want to hear from you this morning. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move with freedom in this place, that you would illuminate the scriptures, that you would control me, that you would eliminate distractions. Jesus, this is always and only about you, that you would be made much of, that our affection for you would be stirred up. And so I pray for those things to happen in our brief time together. God, would you help us now? In your name we pray. Amen. I have uh, three kids, five, four, and two, and the five-year-old and the four-year-old, my two daughters are in school now, like many of your kids might be, and um, they're kind of fascinated right now with this idea of of who's in charge, and so they like to do this little thing, we're sitting at the dinner table, they'll look across at my wife and I, and they'll say, Daddy, who's in charge of this family, you or Mommy? (laughs) Now, I know I say that, and some of you guys are like, My kids don't even have to ask that. They know. Good for you. We're all all very proud of you. But my kids ask. And uh, you know what? It's not just kids who ask. We ask. This is a common this is a common question. This is something that we wrestle with because it's something that permeates uh, every aspect of our life. This question of authority, they're important, they're critical because it's a principle that rules so much of our life. In in your life, authority and submission to that authority it dictates how you do your job. It dictates how you navigate relationships, how you spend your money, it even it can affect your relationship with with God. If you're coaching little league for your kids, you want to be a good coach, you submit to the authority of the rules of the game, right? If, if you are an architect or a builder, you submit to the authority or the principle, the codes or the law of what goes into making a building functional and safe. If you want financial stability in your life, there are principles, there's an authority that guides the way that you spend money. I don't spend more than I make. I, I try to save a little bit of money. So we're familiar with this idea of there being an overarching authority and submitting to that authority, The scripture knows this too. The wisdom writer Solomon, who was the wisest man to ever live apart from uh, Jesus, he, he was a king, he was an architect, he was a musician, and he writes that a reverence for God and his teaching or his authority, it teaches us the beginning of wisdom and wise living. Submitting to the authority of God, to the teaching of God, that's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of wise living. And even though we understand that there is an authority to submit to in almost every category in life, we still struggle with that, don't we? Because we like to live life as autonomous people. In fact, there's a bumper sticker out there that says, question authority, right? Which is kind of odd because by whose authority do you question authority? But the answer is, of course, well, my own authority right? My authority trumps all other authority. I get to live according to my own laws. I get to live according to my own design. But that's kind of a false concept too, right? Because if you've ever been pulled over, you now know, oh, my authority is actually limited by another authority. But it's a question that we all must answer. It's a question that that our text explores today. And it asks the question, who's in charge? Who's the authority in your life? Who are you answerable to? Do you answer only to yourself? Do you answer to a spouse? Do you answer to an employer, a government? Do you answer to the American dream? Do you answer to your reputation or your platform, your influence, your identity? Do you answer to your finances, your money? Do you answer to some kind of moral code or value system that you picked up somewhere along the way? Who or what in your life is the ultimate authority? 
Who or, or what do you serve? Because you will serve someone or something. You will worship whatever has authority over you. We worship whatever has authority over us. And as we continue our study through the book of Mark, there's this tension that continues to build in this narrative. And, and so far, we've been confronted with this question that Jesus asks to us, Jesus asks to the readers, and the question is this, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Every story, every parable, every narrative, Mark is kind of really leading us there to answer that question. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that I am? But now in this story, in our text today, we're confronted with a question from these religious leaders that say to Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? What we saw last week in chapter 11 is that Jesus has upset these religious politicians and leaders enough that now they want to destroy him. And these powerful Jewish politicians and religious leaders, they're going to throw everything they have at Jesus in an attempt to destroy and dismantle and discredit his ministry. Where we are in the story, we're walking through the, the final part of Mark's gospel. We're in what's known as the Passion Week. And this is the historic week between Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem on a Sunday, and it goes all the way to next Sunday when we see Jesus raised from the grave. We've seen Jesus, he's entered the temple, he cursed it, he cleansed it, he proclaimed that, that he not only is the true prophet, priest, and king, but he is the true and better temple. He's also showed that he's the faithful and the fruitful one, and he's calling his followers, he's calling people to be faithful and fruitful as well. So it's Tuesday morning on the Passion Week, Jesus' disciples, they head back into Jerusalem, he teaches them on the, the significance of what he did in the temple and the significance of cursing the, the fig tree. You can go back and listen to what Jeremy taught on that last week. And so we, we see him once again confronted with opposition. And, and we are confronted with the authority of Jesus. And this Jesus will give up his own life on his own authority. And by the authority given to him by God, he'll take it up again. He will lay down his life for the payment of sin to say that he has authority over the power of sin. And then he will rise from the grave and declare his authority over death. These two great enemies of mankind and because of the fall, because of a rejection or rebellion against the holy God, the two great authorities over mankind, sin and death. The Bible teaches us, and we, we know it experiential to be true. Even if you're not a Bible person, you've experienced this. You know it to be true, that our, our sin, our rebellion against God, our, uh, our autonomy, our life of self-seeking worldly pleasure, it captures us. And when we spend so much to chase it down, only to be enslaved to it. There's a main point, and if you happen to fall asleep in the next five minutes, the main point, I think, of these confrontations that we see with Jesus is that he cannot be defeated. That's what we see here in the truth, is that Jesus cannot be defeated. It's a timeless truth with timely application to us as well. Verse 27, Jesus, he's walking about the temple. He's already raised the serious ruckus. He's walking around, these religious leaders, they intersect him, and the Sanhedrin decide to ask Jesus a question. They say, by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? You're coming in here and you're turning everything upside down. By what authority are you doing that? But what are they really concerned about? 
It's the cleansing of the temple, but they want to know, okay, who gave you the right? And, and as typical with rabbis and teachers and particularly Jesus, he answers them with a question of his own. This, Jesus is brilliant. And he says, okay, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. Look at verse 29, chapter 11. He says, I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John, he's speaking of his cousin, John the Baptist, who John the Baptist was a forerunner of types of, uh, of Jesus, and he says, from heaven or from man, answer me. And Luke's gospel gives us an account into some kind of insight here into Jesus' conversation, because these leaders, they come with a valid question. But Jesus is able to discern and understand their hearts, and he responds to their question by asking them a question. And what Jesus kind of has boiled down and rightly assessed is that these leaders are really not seeking answers. They're really not seeking the truth. They're trying to trap Jesus. And what Jesus has done in turn is he's laid this kind of expert trap for these religious leaders because they know if they say, well, John the Baptist got his authority from man, they will upset all the Jewish people that think that he was a prophet from God. So they can't answer that way. They also know that they can't say that John the Baptist got his authority from heaven or that he had divine authority because then they would be without excuse for why they didn't respond to it. You see, the message that John the Baptist brought was that Jesus is a lamb sent from God to pick up and to take away the sin of the world. And these men wanted to kill Jesus. So they cop out. Verse 33 says they don't know. Of course they do know. But here's what's really interesting about that is that um, they, they would rather deny clearly revealed truth than sacrifice their place of prominence or authority. But by them saying we don't know, they actually jeopardize their position as religious leaders and teachers in that society. But they would rather say we don't know than to have to deal with clearly revealed truth, which I think begs the question of us. We have to ask the question of us this morning as well, too. Is there any clearly revealed truth that I'm neglecting, thinking that if I actually confess it to be true, that I'll have to give up some kind of sense of power or position? So from the scripture, from conversations, from other believers, from maybe even this morning so far in our time together through songs we sing and through communion that Jeremy led us through, is there some kind of clearly revealed truth that God is showing to you in his mercy that you are neglecting? You see, when we think of the Pharisees, the Pharisees, for some reason, they always get like the black hat and the pencil-thin mustache. They're always the villain. They're the bad guy, right? But what we need to see in this is that we are them. We are them. Because what the Pharisees are trying to do is they're trying to protect their own authority. They're trying to protect their own autonomy, their own self-seeking lifestyle. That's not different from what I do. I don't think it's different from what you do. We boil it down. These religious leaders, they, they're struggling because they don't want change. And they know that if they confess that to be true, that they're going to have to change. They don't, they don't want to know the truth because that means you have to, to change. There's a phrase that's been around here forever. It says, um, what you know trumps what you feel. Gosh, I hope I got that right. It's like the Magna Carta of this church. Um, 
Now, what that means, it's not just something to kind of stick in your back pocket and be like, oh, that's a good phrase to kind of hold on to. What it means is that I know something to be true, and so I have to put it into action. I have to use it. I can't just have mental assent to it. It has to transform me from the inside out. And people who hear truth and neglect truth wrestle with that, struggle with that. The authority question was very important to the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, these religious politicians, because they had a very tenuous grasp on their own authority. You ever notice how people who, who are barely holding on to authority are very afraid that it will be taken away from them? You ever work for somebody like that? They're always reminding you of what their authority is. They're always trying to assert their authority. They're always reminding you of what their position is and how they got there and who you are and where they are and what the pecking order is and what the hierarchy is. Authority doesn't just simply go around telling everyone that you have authority. You see, this is the nature of Jesus' ministry. Mark tells us early on that whenever Jesus spoke, people marveled because he was someone who spoke as he had authority. When Jesus spoke, authority came out. When he served others at the cost of himself, authority came out. When he loved extravagantly and lavishly, authority came out. When he delivered and ministered and healed, authority came out. The authority of Jesus could not be refuted. But you see, these, these leaders that were opposing Jesus, they all had this purchased authority. They had an authority that feared men and that served themselves. They had an authority that was based on reputation. It was based on money. It was, it was based on Roman rule. It was very fragile. And so they're always afraid. They're always watching out, looking for this man who would come and try to take this authority. But you see, the authority of Jesus wasn't and isn't based on any of those things. That's why Jesus... Um, he, has no, uh, he doesn't think about the consequences of the things that he says or the things that he does because he's under the authority of God. And Jesus exposes their thoughts through this question, and he demonstrates to these leaders that he's not the one with the authority problem. They are. Jesus is not the one who has an issue with authority. It's these Pharisees. And with one question, Jesus proves that they, aren't the, they are the ones that aren't acting under anyone's authority. Because they follow their own authority, their own self-preservation, their own fear, their own greed, their own fear of man and love of self. That's how they rule, and that's ultimately what rules over them. Do you see how liberating the authority of God is? Living under the authority of Jesus is to live under the rule of the king of love, and the scripture tells us that perfect love casts out fear. When you live under your own authority, you live in constant fear of that being threatened or taken away. Jesus shows us things about the leaders that we might see in our own life. I see these things in my own life. The first thing we see, Jesus shows us that these leaders are liars, these leaders are liars because they don't really want the answer. They don't really want the truth. They don't really want to deal with the authority of God. They're liars, and Jesus displays that here. And you know what? Jesus displays that in me too. Jesus displays when I'm a liar. Jesus displays that I'm a sinner. Jesus displays that I don't want to bow down to the authority of God. I want to live under my own authority. I want to be my own king. But ultimately, everyone has to deal with this reality that apart from Jesus, they're a liar and that they don't want to deal with the truth. 
He shows these leaders here, they're afraid of losing power. They're afraid of losing control. They're afraid of losing their reputation. The first thing Jesus reveals is that they're a liar. The second thing that he reveals is that they're unaccountable. They aren't accountable to anyone. Jesus points to God's prophet. He points to God's word. He shows that he's accountable to God. He shows, I come uh, by the, uh, God's authority, but these religious leaders are unaccountable. And here's what Jesus He's saying, look, I'm the ultimate authority from God. And apart from me, we're left to our own devices and our own lies and our own designs. Apart from the love of Jesus in our lives, we're reduced to cowards. We only serve ourselves. We serve our money. We, see, we serve fear of man or whatever lesser thing we prop up as the ultimate thing. Apart from the love of Jesus, I am my own king. And I'm a bad king. And in that scenario, it doesn't matter what the truth is. It only matters how I make it work for me. If, if that's you, if that's me, it doesn't matter what the truth is. Because all I'm concerned about is, well, how do I make it work for me? At the end of the day, how does a, a self-serving reality really work out for us? Because I'm sure that I'm the head of a very long line in this room of people who have gone through extreme and extravagant expense to serve themselves, only to end up miserable and enslaved. You don't, need, you don't have to be a Bible person, you don't have to be a church person to have experienced the truth of that. John 8, 31 talks of a different way, though. The, the, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said this, if you hold to my teaching, then you really are my disciples. You really are my followers. And because then you'll know the truth, and the truth will do what? The truth will set you free. Oh, it's so counterintuitive to us. How can sitting under an authority bring freedom? But Jesus says, my truth will set you free. The truth sets you free from lies. It sets you free from fear. It sets you free from losing all the things that you think are so important that really aren't important. It sets you free from the enslavement to sin. Jesus and his word sets people free. And the question that you have to wrestle with this morning is, where are you? Where are you? Because if you're, if you're outside of that, then you're trapped. Romans 8 says this, therefore, there's no condemnation. You're not condemned if you are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law or from the authority of sin and death. Jesus came to bring freedom. He's a freedom bringer. But the Pharisees, they never answer the question. They simply maneuver. They say to Jesus, we don't know. But Jesus, and this is why I love these kind of encounters, he's, he hasn't done with them yet. Because we turn to page of chapter 12, and he speaks a, a parable to them, a certain parable. And if you're a Jew in the first century, well, let me read it, first, verse 1. And he began to speak of them in parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and he dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. Okay, so if you're a first century Jew, you're hearing this, your interest would be piqued because you have heard all these details about the, the vineyard. There was a prophet named Isaiah, and then Isaiah chapter 5, uh, God speaks through this mouthpiece, this, this, this prophet, and he talks about how the nation of Israel, God's people, is, is the vineyard. And in fact, in that prophecy, he calls him a fruitless and a faithful, faithless vineyard. And so here comes Jesus. He's speaking in parables. He's using this allegorical language. And they would have understood that Jesus is talking about us. The meaning is about us. And what's interesting is that um, 
we, we see that this vineyard of Israel being pillaged by the tenants. And all the characters, they all represent some, somebody in the story. The man or the owner represents God the Father. The vineyard is Israel or God's people. The tenants who are put over the vineyard to work the vineyard are the leaders of God's people. So these are the chief priests and the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and the elders. The servants are the prophets sent by God in the Old Testament. And then the son... The son who comes and is rejected and put to death, that's Jesus. And Jesus tweaks this a little bit because he moves the, the focus from the vineyard to the tenants. Look at verse 2. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So we're told that these first two servants are sent. The tenants beat them. The third one comes and they kill him. And they wouldn't have missed the message here because all throughout history, God had sent his servants, his prophets. These are mouthpieces for God to the vineyard. And his people, the nation of Israel, ordinarily rejected the truth, rejected these people. They often beat, they often killed these prophets, and Jesus is saying, you guys are asking me about my authority, but people have come into the authority of God with messages from God in the past, and you haven't listened to them. And Israel's history is filled with prophets that come and bear witness and bear testimony from God himself, and the people reject him. The, the prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. Amos was ejected. Jer, Jer, Jeremiah was put in the stocks for declaring the word of God. Zechariah was stoned to death, and John the Baptist was beheaded. And so Jesus says, why are you even asking about authority? Because even if I answer you clearly and plainly, you would reject my authority because you have a history of rejecting my authority. You really don't care about the truth. You really don't care about the answer. Look at verse 6. But still he had one other, a beloved son. So the man has one more, a son that he loves. And finally he sent them to the same. He said, okay, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard, which was an incredible sign of disrespect in that culture to not give him a proper burial, to throw him out of the vineyard, to throw him essentially out of the, the city. What will the owner of the vineyard do now? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others just to make sure that these religious leaders don't miss what he's trying to communicate. Jesus, he says this in verse 10 and 11. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. The punchline in this parable stems from the rejection of the owner's son. In that day, um, the tenant farmers, if, if they had been working and there was a season when the owner hadn't been around, they would have kind of like these squatters rights, kind of like these, these tenants rights. And so they assumed that the owner was dead and his heir come. And so they thought, okay, we're going to, the, uh, the owner must be dead because the son has now come. If we just simply kill the son, then the vineyard will be ours. But what Jesus is saying to the, to the leaders here is that fundamentally you are the ones that are rejecting God's authority and you're trying to stand in the place of God. And you'll attempt to do that by rejecting the very son of God who was sent to declare his word to you. And so Jesus is telling them and telling everyone around, he's foretelling them what will happen in just a few days. 
It says God loves the vineyard and he desires to care for it. But the leaders reject him and his servants, even his son. Jesus quotes from a very famous psalm, Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm, which means it was a psalm speaking of the Messiah. And it talks about these stones that were being gathered together to build Solomon's great temple. And one of these stones was rejected because it was deemed not to be the right shape for fitting into the temple uh, structure. When in reality, the psalm is saying here that that one stone is perfectly shaped. It's perfectly hewed to be the perfect link on which everything else in the temple is held together. This rejected stone, in fact, becomes the most important stone In the whole structure, it becomes the cornerstone, the capstone. And the clear implication, even from the rest of the New Testament, is that Jesus is this capstone. He's the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is being held together. You read through Ephesians and Colossians, it tells us that. And so the implication here is that these people are rejecting God's beloved son, Jesus Christ, in whom everything holds together. And so the religious leaders are faced with a choice. And in verse 12, it says... They make a plan to arrest him because they understand in this confrontation that this parable is clearly spoken against him. And they've got options there in how they respond, but they don't want to respond with faith or humility. They're, they're like us. When we hear the word of God, you, you have two choices in response. You, you, by the spirit of God, have your heart softened to it. And, and the, the Bible talks about a stony heart that's broken up and a fleshy heart that's replaced, that the Spirit of God softens your heart, and in faith and in repentance, you come and experience the grace and the mercy and the love of God by hearing His Word. Or you hear God's Word, and your heart becomes hardened to it. And that's what happens with these leaders. They're faced with the authority of Jesus. They're faced with the authority of truth of God's Word, and their heart becomes hard to it. And what about you? When you're faced with the Word of God, when you're faced with the person of Jesus and his authority over your life, what happens to your heart? What's happening even now in your heart? In so many ways, the gospel of Mark wants us to see the character of Christ and understand who he is and what it means to us. And there's two qualities of Christ that we see here. The first is that Jesus has all wisdom. Jesus has all wisdom. He's brilliant. He knows the hearts of these Pharisees. He knows the hearts of the religious elite. And he answers these complicated questions with brilliant wisdom, and the people are astonished by Jesus. The second thing we see is that Jesus has all authority. He has all wisdom, and he has all authority. He rightly interprets and applies the scriptures. He debates these religious leaders, and he applies judgment on those who would soon kill him. Why? Because he has all authority. And an all-wise and an all-authoritative God cannot be defeated. So when we make those we see those characteristics of Jesus. It has its implications for us. The first is this, is that opposition to Jesus means certain defeat. Opposition to Jesus means certain defeat. Uh, you're hearing that and you're like, oh, I knew it. Here's the join us or die part of church. Here's the turn or burn talk. I knew this was coming, right? This doesn't come from a place of arrogance. This doesn't have a place where, hey, we figured it out. Join us or your toast. This comes from a place of brokenness. But do you understand that? The Bible is very clear. Willful, unrepentant disobedience means eternal separation from God. It means death. 
But there is an answer, and the answer is submission to Christ, which means certain victory. Submission to Christ means certain victory. And, it, and if you've come to follow Jesus in repentance and faith, remind yourself of the good news of what it is to be united in Christ. And this is not something that we brag about or that we boast. We sing anthems that broken people sing because we are weak, poor, starving souls, incapable in our own power of doing anything, literally crying out for and clinging to a God who cannot be defeated. It's not about us. It's about him. It's about his authority. The irony of our story as we finish here is that Jesus will soon be crucified, that he will die a brutal and horrific death. And his opponents will think for a little bit that they have won. But we know that the death of Christ actually signals their final defeat. By God's design, by God's brilliant and amazing design, somehow, even in their rejection of the Son, God's sovereign plan for the rescue of humanity is now thwarted. It's actually through this rejection that God would bring his good news of Jesus to the whole world and even graft in Gentiles like me and you into the vine. We, we looked previously at this kingdom that's upside down. This kingdom of God where life comes through death, eternal victory through a temporary defeat. This king, this king Jesus cannot be defeated. And that simple phrase has such a profound impact on our life. That simple phrase that Jesus cannot be defeated is so profound for us this morning. He's the cornerstone. He's the stone. He's his son. And, and it's by his, his own authority that he lays his life down for the sin, for the rebellion of humanity. And he takes it up again so that people might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus Christ came to seek and to save cowards and liars and selfish people like me and like you. He came to save rebels and those who have turned from God to go their own way. And through this cross of Christ, the Apostle Paul calls it a scandalous stumbling block. Jesus would save the lost. And so the invitation is very simple this morning. Come to the stone. Come, come to the stone, this rejected stone that has now become the cornerstone, the most important stone in the whole building. Come and be broken on this stone. Christian, confess your idolatry of living under your own authority, of trying to build your own little kingship. Confess how weary you are over it. Confess how tired you are over it. Come and walk in the freedom of the life-giving authority of our loving King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you are um, so good to us. God, we are challenged um, and encouraged this morning by your word. And God, it is so good for us to just stop and to once again um, gaze at and be uh, marveled by this Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to take away the sins of the world. 
And God, I know that this um, challenges me, and I know that it challenges others in this room, God, because it does confront our idol of wanting to be our own authority. God, I pray that you, by your spirit, God, would just um, break our hearts, God, so that we would know that we can trust you. God, your yoke is, is easy. God, you give life. God, I pray that we would walk in that. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.